Hello, hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Virtually Legal. It's Abby here, and I'll pass you over to... <laughs> oh my god, I, I did... It's Molly. <laughs> Great. I've never mastered that. <laughs> no, I did change it up a bit and it didn't work, so next time I we'll know, go back that to... that really threw me. <laughs> okay, right, let's try and do better at introducing our guest this week. Today, the topic of discussion is diversity, and our guest is Wendy Ramshaw. Wendy is the Inclusion and Diversity Manager at Squire Patton Boggs. So before I let Wendy introduce herself, I just wanted to say a bit about why Molly and I wanted to talk about diversity on our podcast, because I know a few weeks ago we've talked about women in law, and now we wanted to talk about diversity more generally. Obviously, currently diversity is quite a prominent topic, which unfortunately hasn't really had enough airtime in the past and I'm going to pass over to Wendy now to introduce a bit about herself and her role. Hi there, hi guys. Um, thank you very much Molly and Abby for inviting me um, onto this session. So yeah, so I'm Inclusion and Diversity Manager at Squire Patton Boggs. Uh, I've been in role now since last May. Uh, prior to that I was more involved with kind of learning and development and then before that I was actually uh, a corporate banker. So I've had quite a quite an array of roles uh, over <laughs> the last sort of 15 years. Um, but Squire Patton Boggs is a global law firm and my role very much sits across that sort of global piece really so I'm, I'm working with colleagues uh, in Europe and Australia and then I have a colleague in America that I work very closely with and we kind of work together on uh, covering all of our global offices. Do you find that across your global offices the issues are like, like nuanced slightly differently and different parts of the world? Totally and actually that's probably the biggest challenge of this role is you know you have a brilliant programme in the UK and you think brilliant I'll go and scale that up and we'll go and deliver it in Europe and Australia and what have you and you realise that absolutely right Right, that the, the challenges are very, very different. The cultural settings are very, very different. Um, and also, you know, legally, there, there's a very different approach to things as well. So, for example, all of the great work we're doing in the UK and Europe around LGBT inclusion is something that we can't talk about in the Middle East and Asia. Um, so, you know, we have to be very careful about how we are presenting our programme in our different countries and what emphasis we're placing on, on different initiatives. Mm, definitely. I think the episode today is probably going to focus more on the UK side of things. Um, obviously, Black Lives Matter has been this kind of like global resurgence. And like you said earlier, a catalyst and a, a real kind of like talking point that's really got people thinking about these things. So let's jump in because obviously diversity and inclusion is something that affects us in all walks of life. But Wendy, specific to the legal industry, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that it faces? that maybe don't come up so much in just like everyday life? Um, I think that the legal sector has um, has some challenges around representation. And I think that as well, it, it's a sector which is um, really steeped in a lot of tradition as well, which um, could potentially hold it back in terms of how it approaches diversity and inclusion. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, as, as my background was in banking, I think what I've noticed is that, you know, different sectors do have a different approach to this. And what we need to do is to help uh, the legal industry to look outside of itself to maybe find those solutions as well and really kind of learn from our clients and learn from other industry sectors in terms of what works and, and also learn from others' mistakes as well. We shouldn't just repeat everything that any, everyone else has done. You know, I think we can definitely learn from from their kind of challenges as well. I think the key things really are around um, 
that sort of representation of minority and also trying to get away from this notion that law is a very elitist sector and that you know you can only get into law if you've been to um you know an oxbridge university uh and that you know your one of your family members is already within the law uh, or a barrister or something like that so it's trying to break down i think some of these um kind of myths and also kind of legacy um kind of legacy perspectives that people have about the legal industry I definitely agree about the idea of a legacy perspective but I would question if if you took statistics at face value which we're going to go into later that you really you can't really but if you were to take statistics at face value it does make it seem like it it's not really that much of a myth particularly when you look at things like a lot of the magic circle firms and their representation across the board isn't fantastic Mm, I think that's our challenge is because you know when you look at statistics like that you are looking at a across the whole firm really you know you're looking at a very multi-generational workforce you're looking at people who have been in law for potentially sort of 30 years plus and you know that's one of the, the greatest challenges I have is that can really kind of dilute the good work that you're doing when it comes to you know the kind of the entry uh, point uh, for graduates and things like that you know I think what we need to be doing is is asking more pertinent questions about the actions that law firms are actually now taking in order to tackle some of these statistics and you know certainly when you start looking at gender pay gap reports and ethnicity pay gap reports they've come under a lot of um criticism in terms of you know they're not measuring the right things and they mask some of perhaps some of the the real issues but what they have done is they've opened up the debate they've got us talking about these things and I think that's the main thing is that statistics tell you one story you've got to get behind that and you've got to understand um, what they are now doing in order to change those statistics and of course if you think about it as well you're not going to change those numbers overnight you know this is a really slow ship to turn and you know I've been sort of looking at my statistics now over the last year and you sort of want to put your head in the hand sometimes because you think, but I've been doing all of this great work and I've only moved by half a percentage point. Um, and that's why, you know, you then start getting into discussions around quotas and quotas can be uh, brilliant in terms of focusing your intentions and setting priorities. But they also can drive the wrong behaviours as well, because actually trying to achieve that figure, you know, I see some law firms that have been very bold and said that they want to achieve 30 um, percent of female representation at partnership. It depends where you're starting from. You know, if, if you're starting from 20%, to actually achieve 10% in partnership, you have to really think about how you're going to be promoting uh, and then supporting the promotion of those females into those partnership roles as well because you don't want to be setting up people to fail. You, know, you want people to feel like they've got their on merit uh, and not just on their gender or, or identity. So it's a really delicate area and it, it, it does present quite a lot of challenge to us I think so yeah so statistics are are really important they give us a good benchmark but that mustn't be the end of the story yeah we need to look at the bigger picture and I think we we were saying about especially in relation to women in law but I guess in relation to every minority um it's really hard to and you don't want to dishearten people because currently with these statistics there's not many people that these minorities can actually like mirror and look up to and that's what we don't want to limit even though there isn't like this actual sort of like end picture the rainbow the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow doesn't mean that you can't get there what kind of um like entry level initiatives um do you have in place wendy or would you recommend that companies could put in place to kind of improve that like grassroots inclusion 
Yeah, there's probably quite a few different things actually, and and I think it, there's kind of two strands to this. I think there's the story that you're telling, and then there's also the activities and the and the reviews that you're doing of some of the processes. So some of the things that we've done. Um, uh, have been particularly focused around social mobility and um, so this year we well say this year obviously it was last graduate cycle we've now into I forget where we're on the, in the calendar year now so <laughs> last year's grad cycle um, we introduced contextualized recruitment for the first time and so contextualized recruitment is basically um, a system that it's a bit it's it's effectively leveling up so it's providing context to people's academic achievement to ensure that you know that people who have perhaps had I don't know three A's at a non-Russell Group University also have other social mobility indicators such as um, having been eligible for free school meals at um, whilst they're at school they may have come from a postcode area which is considered to be more deprived and um, they could also be first in family to go to university so you know all of these indicators um, kind of get put into a system and they effectively are given uh, a higher grade that is more contextual to how they got there, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it's not about, um, you know, giving people an unfair advantage. I think it's just trying to create that level playing field. And last year, you know, we were really delighted to be able to offer um, a couple of training contracts to people who had come through that system that may have, I wouldn't have said they would have been overlooked, um, but they certainly became much more um, in our in our line of sight, if that makes makes sense. You know, they were kind of elevated to the top of our list to really kind of look at. Yeah, definitely. I imagine that would be so important off the back of the A level scans as well, because there was so there was so much angst around the kind of postcode element to that mm, yeah and this year actually um you know we've been sort of working with our provider on this to kind of look at well you know how are your algorithms going to start reflecting any changes to the a-level grades and and also you know this is a really fast-moving space as well and there's more and more sort of ways of, of being more sophisticated than how we assess people as well based on social mobility so it's um that's something that we found has been really successful and um, we also do blind recruitment as well so we don't actually see a candidate's name once they apply to us so it means that we can actually look at their um, academic attainment and you know their personal statements and what have you without really having any way of identifying them which I think has been really important to to combat any sort of bias. That blind screening of people is really interesting actually because when I was reading why I'm no longer talking to white people about race part of that book was um talking about a, a study where um, a recruiter had been shown a CV and generally um, the CVs that had more Eurocentric names, even though they actually had equal kind of backgrounds and yeah, and like marks and things like that, the people with more Eurocentric names on the whole did considerably breath, like better and progressed a lot yeah. further. I know you've heard really awful stories about people who have sort of changed their name to I don't know John Smith or something like that on a CV to see what difference it makes and it, it's really quite frightening what a difference it does make so you know that's been our attempt to really kind of remove that that level of any sort of prejudice on, on, oh, on yeah, health screening bias. yeah exactly so it's just trying to look at every stage of your process to to think are there any barriers here and actually one thing that we're going to focus on this year is tracking the progress of applicants as well through the system so you know are we sort of noticing perhaps that there is a trend where um, our black applicants are not reaching as far in the process as our white applicants for example um, and just sort of making sure that you know there aren't any barriers in there and if 
and some of them you know maybe things that we can't actually influence but I think it's important to, to look and to find out and then that could involve us going into some sort of focus group setup where we start asking candidates you know um you know what was the most challenging part of this for you how could we make it different better etc so I think it's going to turn into a much more consultative approach really to make sure that we get it right um, the other thing I wanted to highlight as well is that we've become a lot more kind of switched on to neurodiversity and really wanting to make sure that we are supporting any applicants that have, um, well, any disability first and foremost. Um, we've also found that people have been a lot more open to sharing with us that they have things like dyslexia um, and that they need extra time or, you know, things like that really to, to kind of aid their their um, application process and we've been very open to having conversations with individuals to make sure they've got exactly what they need in order to succeed yeah putting those reasonable adjustments, adjustments yes yeah, exactly. this is something similar but quite different um i was looking on linkedin the other day and about how because you know all these resources and it was making me think about um pe- different people get into different stages within the application process and obviously like you it's got some people probably more from a privileged background who can afford to pay for all of these like extra tests or extra documents and oh my god I saw something the other day that said you can literally buy for a basically a robot to do the test for you gosh (laughs) but it's just stuff like that really makes you wonder and think like this sort of commercialized aspect now that everyone that is providing this commercial awareness advice can now charge you for this like and how because I used to write for a website and then they changed it to making it like a paid subscription and I just wasn't really comfortable with it with it because first of all I was like I'm not getting paid for this and I'm the content writer it it just it just kind of feels uncomfortable something that started as a like as very philanthropic and people that have done well in the training contract application process wanting to give back turned into Mm. something else exactly and and again it just it just comes back to that whole elitist sort of thing doesn't it is that you know access to information is restricted based on your financial ability and I think that that's so wrong and and actually one of the things we've been trying to do is to work much more closely with non-Russell Group universities and and one of the things that we have been asked to help them with specifically is that commercial awareness piece actually so we're running a program at the moment the other sort of side of this is is the inclusion angle and, and as I said before, I think that's all about how you then tell your story, because what we want to make sure is that, you know, we can put all the diversity initiatives in the world into our recruitment processes. But if people then come to us and they don't actually feel that we're living that, then you, you sort of think, well, what was the point? So we're doing a lot of awareness raising within the firm to kind of educate people around what some of those issues are you know what the lived experiences are of some of our minority groups but also to make sure that for people kind of looking outside into us as a firm that they feel that we are a firm that actually welcomes diversity and that they can come and be their authentic selves and all of that sort of good stuff so it's hard to achieve that and it feels like it's a very intangible you know you're creating a sense of belonging which is a very difficult thing to measure um but i think you do that through storytelling you do it through people actually being able to be themselves but sharing that in a way that other people can actually listen as well and hear it and and feel that it's real does that make sense so yeah definitely yeah. like your like your ethos definitely shouldn't just be on the first page of your website like it should it should kind of be part of everything you do and i think yeah, ingrained exactly. in your system rather than yeah. just sort of yeah yeah i think like one 
obviously we've talked about why diversity is at the forefront of people's minds is because of a lot of the kind of political things that have been happening at the moment but definitely there's been a kind of like slow undercurrent movement over the last like 10 years or so of companies now want to work with law firms who reflect and project their clientele yeah and like those values and I think things like being socially responsible environmentally responsible diverse and inclusive used to be just kind of like add-ons for companies but now they need to be so intrinsic because it could really inhibit actually who you could work with and I mean that shouldn't be your motivation but I can't lie, it is obviously going to be motivation for businesses. Yeah, and, you know, I think if that's what it takes, then then brilliant, you know, because at least someone is asking for it and then we are having to respond. And we, we have clients that, you know, are, are really quite rigorous with us in terms of wanting to know about um, who's been working on their matters. Um, oh, and really? sometimes, yeah, and, you know, sometimes it can be, a, you know, it does expose us and we have to accept that, okay, we didn't do so well there, but now we know where we need to focus and let's do better next time. So, yeah, you know, clients are really switching onto this they're very very interested in what we're doing but also what I found over the last six months or so is that they actually want to listen to the sort of stuff that we're doing as well because I think law firms are recognized that whilst they are behind in some some aspects we're actually throwing resource at this which is you know that they're maybe not Mm -hmm. able to do so they're quite keen to sort of sit down with us and have a conversation and say okay you know how have you approached this and 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 I I mean I had a brilliant call the other day with a client and, and he shared me their action plan in response to Black Lives Matter I shared mine and between the two of us we sort of came up with a brilliant plan together so you know I think that collaborative approach is is what's going to win this because you know it's not for us as a, as a law firm in isolation to solve the problem and it's not for our clients to solve it we have to do it together. I was going to say with regards to sort of you were talking earlier about your sort of disabled and neurocentric initiatives um, is there anything in particular that um, Squire Pass and Boggs does in this respect? Yeah, so we've actually just this year um, launched a disability passport scheme, which is something that we think is quite uh, quite forward thinking. So I'm quite proud of this achievement. <laughs> um, and what we recognise, so I was um, party to some really interesting law society research, actually, which which made me quite upset, if I'm being honest, because it was saying about how, you know, people with a disability are so fearful of disclosing um, it to, to their supervisors that they actually would be more willing to cause themselves more physical injury or pain um, and, and, and ill health than actually fess up and say, actually, I really need this reasonable adjustment. So um, we recognise that there is a lot of stigma attached to disability, particularly in this sector. So whilst we can't solve that overnight, we wanted to create uh, an enabling strategy, really, for um, our trainees to to be able to have that conversation with a supervisor in a, in a much more comfortable way. So... The passport scheme is effectively a a document that you can fill in. Uh, It gives a little bit more information about what your um, what your workplace is like for you with that disability in mind and what a good day looks like for you, what a bad day looks like for you and kind of what additional support would really help you to thrive. And we we sort of launched it with our with our trainees because we thought, well, actually, in Squires, we have a six seat rotation, which means that, you know, they're potentially having to have that conversation six times in those first couple of years, which can cause, you know, real anxiety and stress, which we're trying to mm. diminish. And then we've also um, 
kind of been thinking about how we can do more training as well to raise awareness about you know different disabilities and what that does and doesn't mean you know again we attach a lot of assumptions to you hear the word disabled and you instantly kind of think that someone is not capable of doing something Uh, and that's what we need to get over we need to remove that assumption and and actually sort of see a disabled uh, member of staff as being a really fully contributing person that can add a tremendous amount of value. I think that's something that definitely to me probably mm. quite a bit of naivety but obviously with the recent introduction of masks and everyone having to wear masks and then I've just like seen more like hidden disability badges everywhere and I think that's something that a lot of disabilities are hidden and that's something that just because they're hidden doesn't mean they still don't need to be addressed. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, I just want to I just want to try and create and again this comes back to the whole inclusion piece, you know, it's just to try and create an environment where people feel that they can speak up, not be judged uh, negatively for it. And, you know, that feels like a, a utopia place to be and I appreciate that's not gonna happen overnight either. Uh, but you know we can try and I think that the passport scheme was 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 a real kind of strong step in that regard so Wendy I've got a final curveball question for you go on then we do like these don't we (laughs) I'm scared now I feel like I'm in an interview (laughs) I know we always write like an outline of notes for what we're going to say before but I've gone off the notes now um do you think lockdown and working from home has affected people's approach to diversity and inclusion obviously at the start we said it's probably meant that it's given more time to to people to sit back and reflect on it um but do you think it's thrown up any other challenges perhaps yeah it's funny because at the beginning of lockdown um everyone was sort of saying oh this is great because you know this is inclusion in action because we're all living we were all kind of at the same place now and you know we're all affected in the same way I think we very quickly realised that actually that wasn't the case, that, you know, people are having a very individual experience of lockdown. And, you know, we, we're probably very alive to some of the some of the news reports about, you know, who's been more impacted and uh, and things like that. The so, rich getting richer. Uh, yeah, exactly. And also... <laughs> On Jeff Bezos' <laughs> yeah, Exactly. It's, I'm sure his lockdown has been probably quite enjoyable. Um, but I think, you know, what, what it has switched us on to, though, is... The mental health issues you know kind of really thinking about our well-being and i think that people have started to think about flexible working and agile working and working from home law is not a sector which has traditionally welcomed home working um but you know miraculously we still manage to to run a very productive organization with all of us <laughs> working from home who knew um so you know i think it's it's forced us to, to to be a bit more innovative to think outside the box about how we can solve some of these issues um but i do think that um i have to come back to the black lives matter movement and you know that i think was was definitely a transitional moment for the diversity inclusion debate i think it brought it to the forefront of people's mind and it gave us a platform to talk about other things as well so you know you can't just look at one thing in isolation i think that's the big thing i've learned about diversity is you've got the intersectional element you know you've got to bring um, I think this year's for Pride, whilst the Pride marches weren't happening, they very much made it about um, that sort of intersectional piece with black um, LGBT representation as well. So really mm. kind of trying to combine two massive movements there to, to look at it mm. with that lens. So, you know, I think that it has, I think it's improved the the debate. Um, I think it's taken it in a, in a perhaps in a different direction to where we were you know nine months ago um but i welcome it i think it's been a real positive actually for me i don't think i've ever been so busy or had so much interest in the work that i'm doing yeah that's so great and yeah definitely the interest is i think 
one of the most important things and people being mm. receptive to change and wanting to change a pleasure so here, yeah no problem. To, Thank to you. actually hear what's going on at law firms because it's very easy for us as students to just hypothesize and criticize but it's really great to know that there is actually some tangible initiatives and there's people like you actually with an interest and a passion in trying to make things better and i think that's a lot of the time people look at all your websites and think oh is this just something people need to do to hit that like quota but then when you speak to people like you you realize it's actually not it's just out of people with interest and it sort of represents the culture at the firm because like everyone is a part of a bigger picture yeah and you know what i would say my big piece of advice is is you know don't take everything you see on a website's face value ask the questions because that's when you really understand um how much uh, the law firm is actually behind it is if you ask people who work for the law firm what do they know about the diversity and inclusion program that will give you a better indicator mm-hmm. of, as, as to how well embedded it is thank you so much to wendy for taking the time to talk to us It was a really thought-provoking discussion and definitely interesting to see how a global law firm is tackling issues around diversity and inclusion. Overall, the legal sector has a reputation of being, for want of a better phrase, male, stale and pale. But more recently, law firms have begun to liven up to issues and it's now on its way to improving some of those pervasive problems. Achieving diversity is a multifaceted issue. There's no one-size-fits-all response and no singular way to measure success. For instance, within issues around women in law, which we touched on a few weeks ago, there's intersectional feminism. You have to appreciate that the issues white women face will be different to the issues faced by black women. The result being that whatever strategies you implement need to be nuanced and constantly under review. Above all, an effective response to diversity and inclusion involves empathy and a willingness to put yourself in someone else's shoes so we can level the playing field and create equal opportunity for everyone. Thank you again for listening and please follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram.